Let's get to some Let's real questions, ready? okay? I, uh, I mean, I, this we're is a, getting this deeper is and deeper right now, so. <laughs> this is a goodie. Yeah. So it comes from someone that's single, and they're asking, which I know a lot of us, I've heard this in, within youth ministry, within the culture today, when sex is not involved in a relationship, and the church is saying, abstain from sex before marriage, then how will they know that they're sexually compatible? This person's been married once before, and the sex was awful. She was very confused by that and wants to know your suggestion. So you taking that one? Lisa, you want those? <laughs> I don't want that one. That's the experts. You can start with that one. Okay. So here's, here's the deal. And I, I, this, to me, this, I think we get so mixed up about this because, guys, here, at the end of the day, sex is not the glue that holds a relationship together. And so this whole idea that I've got to be sexually proficient before I get to marriage, to me is just bananas, it's bonkers. Now, do I want to be sexually proficient after I'm married? Absolutely. But that's the fun of marriage, right? That's figuring that stuff out. And, and I'm just going to say to you that the problem that this particular individual had was not out of the fact that they didn't have sex before marriage, it's that they didn't talk about sex after they got married. Okay, let me say that again. The problem that she had is not that they didn't have sex before they got married, it's that they didn't talk about sex. Because here's the deal. If you're talking about what you need and what is exciting for you and what brings pleasure for you, and if you're sharing that openly with each other, you're gonna get to best practices. Believe me, you're gonna get there. And I think that even becomes in many ways just kind of a, uh, a way of beginning to tip our toes into intimate conversations. Because guys, if you can't talk about the physical act of sex together, I guarantee you there's a hundred other things that you can't talk about in your relationship. There just are. So this isn't about, hey, let's go out and experiment and do this a hundred times before we get there. Because the truth is, every man is going to be excited by different things. And every woman is going to be excited by different things. And even if you had a hundred partners, you're still going to have to learn what your partner needs. And the problem with being sexually promiscuous before marriage is that we cause huge amounts of damage that may not ever be able to be overcome after marriage. Remember, let me, I got a passage in Scripture. Uh, we've used this before, and some of you guys are familiar with it. It's, uh, it's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, and it just says this. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 18. It says, flee. It says, run away from this. I mean, run away from this. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins that a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. And if you do a study of that word body, it really means his personhood, the, the inside of who he is or who she is. As a matter of fact, it even goes on to say, you know, why would you have sex with a prostitute? Because don't you get that you're becoming one flesh with the prostitute? Because there's this soulish connection that happens in physical intimacy. And the reality is, um, when you do that, you cause so many scars, so many hurts, so many regrets that you'll spend tons of time after marriage trying to heal that all up in your lives. But when you get to marriage, guys, I'm just telling you, half the fun is a husband telling his wife, hey, when you do this, man, that's pretty cool. And her telling him, hey, when you do this, that, that makes this much more enjoyable for me. And if you have that open communication after marriage, I, man, that, isn't that half of the fun of it all? I mean, I don't, you know, what, why not? And, and there's no reason why you're not going to get to a place where you're both pretty happy. 
Lisa, you want to add? Yes, I was just going to say, you may not know this, but they cannot read our minds. They cannot read our minds. I know we think that they can. So I think it's important to communicate and to say the things you like or you don't like. Those things are very important. Yeah, I, you know, and honestly, you know, within our relationship, maybe we're saying more than we should say, but uh, Never. Uh, I, I will tell you that there's moments that I say to Lisa, hey, what is it that you find most enjoyable? Tell me that, because I don't know that. Tell me what that is so that I, because I want, and guys, I'm just, man, this is just a hint to you, because I have men all the time say, hey, my wife is on a different page physically than where I am, and she doesn't necessarily want to be intimate as often as I want to be. And guys, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, but I don't want to be a reason for that. And so one of the commitments I made very, very early on in our relationship is I said, you know what? My primary goal every time that Lisa and I are together is to make sure she has a great time. Because I think it's so easy for us as guys to be selfish. We're much easier to please. And so sometimes you can go, hey, this is just going to be about me. And, you know. and so my commitment was I'm going to make sure that her experience is an amazing experience because I want her always to want the experience. Does that make sense? Next. Yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> I'm taking notes. This okay. <laughs> so I, apparently I said enough. Huh? Yeah, okay, all right, all right. Okay, crossing some if lines. I all right. Add to um, being a guy that was raised in a home that definitely did not have these con conversations and growing up and then trying to be in a Christian relationship with my wife where we were uh, setting Christian boundaries, that was very difficult for me to have that same question, but to know the chase was worth it and the commitment that mm. it's more than just sex. There's so many other values as young people in a marriage and sex can just dilute and convolute what true love really is asking and true love waits. I really believe that with all my yeah, heart. Yeah, I do too. True love waits. Absolutely waits. And it doesn't compromise. Yeah. Because if you and begin, I'm just, and, and guys, in case you just think I'm a pastor and getting real over everything, I'm just going to tell you that last week, you know, we did kind of the challenge, you know, get her to play, you know, the business card as much as you can. My wife brought home a stack. <laughs> so I'm just saying. Wow. Just saying. Paper. And, uh, and I'm trying to live up to the stack now. <laughs> so there you it's go. worth it. There you go. Worth it. All right. All right, so we noticed, there's a question coming out saying they noticed that you two invite other couples along with you on vacation, date nights, going out to eat. The first question is why do you do that and what's the value that that brings to your marriage? Hmm. Lisa, you wanna tackle that? Well, first off on vacation that's fun and you can only spend so many hours together. Hmm. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> ah. so anyways, um, actually we've, we found that we really enjoy doing that. So we go on a cruise or whatever to have another couple. Like I said, you can only spend so much time together. So, and there's things that he likes to go and do that I don't necessarily like to go and do, vice versa. So it's really fun if we find someone else to go and do that. So I can go and do lots of shopping uh, with someone and he can go play golf or whatever it is he wants to do. So that's one of the reasons why. And then on date night, um, we don't do that on all of our date nights, but we love to get to know couples and to do that. So we will usually schedule it in on that date night time. I think, I think it's given us a chance to do a lot of mentoring for younger couples and just to kind of share our marriage with them a little bit. And, uh, and then the other part is, I'm just going to be honest and tell you, I, I come away from some of those times being really thankful for my wife because I hear what she says to him, and I'm like, man, I'm so glad I'm not married to her. You know, and it is, man, I, you know, suddenly I'm thankful, you know, so, 
But it wasn't being out with any of you that he said that. Yeah, none of, none of you that I said that. Yeah. yeah, that was people from another church. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think I'm in trouble. No, okay. No, All right. Good. Keeping it real. Okay. All right. <laughs> so. What if you and your spouse are not equally yoked? That's a, a question hmm. that will define equally yoked and disagree about how to live a Christian life. So there may be conflicts in a marriage where it's finances, serving, tithing. How does that work when they're not seeing eye to eye? Hmm. So, you know, I, I, I hope everybody here gets this. You know, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is really, really clear and just says, don't be unequally yoked. Do not be unequally yoked. In other words, a Christian who's married to, and I would even suggest dating a, a non-believer. And Scripture just says so clearly, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And I would say to our singles that are in the room right now, don't date somebody who doesn't love your Jesus. Just don't even begin there because here's the problem. Okay. You know who's clapping? who's clapping is either people who have done this and had to learn the hard way, or they've got someone they love who's done this and learned this a painful way. Guys, that's why you heard that response. Because here's the deal. People that don't know Jesus are still nice people, and, and they're lovable. And so what happens is you date them, and you begin to fall in love with them, and then you begin to overlook the fact that they don't know your Jesus. And what you don't realize is, is that when you begin to now chart a course in life with them, Every single answer that they're going to have about life, if you're following Christ, is going to be different. Because they're never going to ask, what would God want for that? Or how would God want me to obey that? Or what sacrifice would God want me to? Because they don't have that relationship with God that you do. And a matter of fact, there's a, there's a really cool verse in the Bible. Uh, it's Amos. Uh, whoops, Amos. 3, verse 3, and it simply asks this question. It says, can two people walk together unless they be agreed? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is pretty simple. No, you can't. If one person's walking to downtown Chandler and the other person's walking to downtown Mesa, you're not going to walk together. You're on different courses. Why would you take your life and strap your life, would yoke your life to somebody who doesn't know your Jesus and doesn't love your Jesus as much as you do? And I'm just telling you, it brings a world of hurt. It brings a world of hurt to your relationship. And then the other part I'd say out loud, guys, I think this equally applies to being unequally yoked in depth of spirituality. Because you can have a really, really strongly committed Christian, and suddenly they're saying, hey, I think God's calling me to the mission field, and you've got a baby Christian, and that answer terrifies them. Why would I give up my home, and why would I make those sacrifices? Why would I raise my children in a foreign country? Why would I ever do that? That makes no sense to me because they're not a place spiritually where they're willing to maybe make those commitments and sacrifices, and now you've got monstrously big tension in the home, both Christians, but they're unequally yoked in the level of commitment they have in Christ. And, and just to say this out loud, this is especially true. Ladies, let me help you a minute. This is especially true for you, because I can't tell you how many women will marry a man who is spiritually miles behind them, because here's what you say in your heart, I'll help him. I'll help him become more spiritual. And what you don't realize in that moment is this is your mothering instinct, and you don't want to marry a child, even a child spiritually, okay, and try to mother them into being the spiritual leader of your home. It's a horrible decision. Marry a man, and marry a man spiritually, because the moment you wed him, the moment you walk down the aisle, 
you realize you walk down that aisle as equals. But the moment you marry him, you stay equals. None of that changes with the marriage vows, but the promise you make is to let him now assume a position of leadership. And if you don't respect the quality of his spiritual life, you've just put yourself in a position where it is going to be almost impossible for you to respect him. I mean, how do you not have conflict when he's making spiritual decisions that you can outthink twice every single day? It's a horrible decision on the part of a woman. And so I would just say to you, stay strong, stay strong, stay strong. Do not date a man who you do not respect spiritually. And don't you dare marry a man that you don't respect spiritually. But I think the question goes further, so I, all that time. What do you do when you've done that? Because there's moments where someone gets married, they're both not Christians, and then suddenly one is a Christian, right? Or maybe you just made, you know, a poor decision. You married somebody who's not a Christian, and now you're kind of dragging them along in the relationship. And this is hard. This is the pain that God was trying to help us avoid. He was trying to never have us walk this trail. But if you find yourself on this trail, then uh, you've, got, you've got some huge Christ-likeness to now start exhibiting in this relationship. If you're the husband, if you're the husband and your wife doesn't know Jesus, then you're going to have to be wildly patient and say, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm not going to impose this on you. I'm not going to force you into something that's not true of your heart, but I am going to ask us to do some things together, and that may be, hey, I want us to go to church. You know, I want, us, I want you at least in the room exposed to the ideas of Christ. But you've got to be careful. You've got to realize you aren't God. You cannot make this decision for her, and you've got to be willing to give her time and grace. Think about this as a church. One of the things I think we do amazingly well as a church is say to people, we believe this to be true, and we believe the Bible's accurate, and we have no doubt that Jesus Christ is Savior, but you don't have to agree with us on the first day. It's okay for you to come and figure that out along the way. And if you're the husband in an unequally yoked relationship, I think you have to give that same grace to your spouse. Ladies, if this thing is turned around and now you're the believer and he's not the believer, I think this one's doubly tough because now you find yourself in the position of him being the head of your home and yet not possessing the spiritual capacity to truly be a spiritual leader in your home. And uh, matter of fact, I'll, I'll give you a passage. And it's in First uh, Peter. I know I'm taking a long time. I'm sorry. First uh, Peter chapter 3. Let me read this for you real quick. It just says, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they will be won over, next phrase, without words, by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. And so, ladies, I'm just going to tell you, this is going to involve a lot of biting your tongue. It just is. Because if you begin to tell him, hey, you should, and you're not, and why don't you, and how come you don't believe in my Jesus, you will turn into his Holy Spirit, and you are not qualified to be his Holy Spirit. And he will, he will take all of his frustration, all of his resistance, and it will become a battle between you and him. And he may just win that battle. But if you can be quiet and show a godly life, then suddenly he has to wrestle with the real Holy Spirit, and he's bound to lose that battle.
okay? So ladies, it's a hard road, but I'm just gonna ask you to do that. You said something when the early served, something about wives ducking. You remember what that was? Oh, I just said, I think that sometimes submitting is ducking so God can punch them. <laughs> there you go. So it's an interesting journey, and I, man, man, if you're single, make this decision right. If you're a Christ follower and living in it, man, do this well, because it, it's, it, it's a hard road that God never really wanted for you. Yeah. I would just add to this that, I mean, God is in control, so you need to allow Him to be in control. And um, if you've already been in this relationship for a, a while, the best thing you can do is get on your knees and pray. Yeah. And leave it up to God. Hey, there's, the there's, they, there is an amazing movie out there right now, guys. If you haven't had a chance to go to it, you, you want to go see it. It's called War Room. War Room. War Room. And, uh, yeah, some of you have seen it. It's the story, it's the story of a wife who, they, both of them are believers, they're just both backslidden believers. She's a realtor, she goes to sell an older lady's house, she begins to tell this older lady how horrible her husband is and all his problems. The older lady has enough wisdom to ask her this question, how much are you praying for your husband? And in that moment, she feels convicted, she's bothered by that question. She ends up deciding instead of trying to nag her husband or push her husband into being more Christ-like, to begin to pray for him and to submit and do what Christ would do. And it's an incredible unfolding of the power of God to transform the life of a husband. And I would just encourage you, it's a great date night. Now, look, here's the deal. It's a Christian movie, which means it's kind of lifetime quality. Probably not going to win any Oscars. But the story is really, really, really good. So War Room, you might want to go see it. Yeah. It's worth checking out. Yeah. As a youth pastor, I want to add for parents, as you're parenting these um, students, these young kids, that you would stay equal in the decisions you're making as parents. Because it is so tough for a young kid to hear two different voices in their life. So if you have a unified front, whether that's using scripture, which I personally believe in, as that unified decision, it makes parenting that much easier when you're on the same page and you're defending each other's decisions, hmm. uh, being on an equal front as parents. Speaking of husbands and leading your home, parenting and marriage, uh, we have a question that says, what can we do as husbands to be the spiritual leader of the family? The family that we know our wives crave us to be that leader, that hmm. the parent, uh, kids need. What does that look like? Hmm. You want to do that or me? You start. Okay. Here, here's what I think happens a lot in this. Men, we sit in the room and, and we hear this all the time and we hear pastors say, hey, you ought to be the spiritual leader of your home. And, and then we walk out of the room and we go, crumb, you know, I probably should do that. But what does that look like? I mean, do I need to become a theologian so I can answer Bible questions in my house? You know, do I have to do like a Bible study once a week? I mean, wh how, what does that mean to be the spiritual leader of our home? And this feels so ambiguous and so fuzzy that I think a lot of times, men, we just don't even take a shot at it because we're like, how do you even measure being a spiritual leader in your home? And I don't even know how to begin. And the reality is, guys, I don't think it's that hard. I think this is much easier than we make it. Here, let me give you a simple question that I think brings a ton of clarity for you. I think every single man in this room ought to ask this question about his home. What would it mean for my family to be more Christ-centered than the home I grew up in? Let me say that again. What would it mean for my home to be more Christ-centered than the home I grew up in? And when all of a sudden you ask that question, I guarantee you, 
things will, you'll go, oh, wait a minute. I, I can figure that out really, really quick. So let me, let me give you three things that I think every man, I don't care where you are spiritually, could do right now that would position you as the spiritual leader of your home. You could walk out of here today completely stepping into this, this position uh, for your family. Number one, I would, I would encourage every man in this room to make this simple decision. The Smith family, the Johnson family, we go to church every Sunday, period. Uh, we don't wake up on Sunday morning and try to figure out if we're going to church or if we're tired or how much homework we have before Monday comes along. If you would just simply say, Here's, here is the Johnson family value. We are in church every Sunday. Do you realize that very simple decision would set you up in spiritual leadership in your home? And then you've got to be the guy that enforces it. You've got to be the guy who, when the kid's on Saturday night going, oh, I'm too tired now, and you go, I don't care. I don't care. The Johnson family goes to church every Sunday because that's what we do to honor God, period, in the Johnson family. Okay? Uh, second thing uh, that you could do, you could become what I call two-hour Christians. And here's what I mean by that. That you would say for your family, for your family culture, hey, we're not just Sunday-only Christians. Because you know how many Christians are out there, right? They come to church on Sunday and they live like the devil the rest of the week. And if you were to say, um, they're our neighbors, they're not us, they're our neighbors. Uh, <laughs> if you were to simply say, men, you ready for this? You and I can't get enough Bible. We can't learn enough about If we're going to be serious about our Jesus, just sitting in a purple chair on Sunday. So we're going to be two-hour Christians, which means if you've got young uh, kids who are in grade school, you realize we've got a thing over uh, in the other side on Tuesday nights called Kaboom. It's all about giving your grade schooler Bible. Make the decision that just says, hey, you're going to Kaboom. And I know what that means. It means you're going to have to get in your car on Tuesday night, drive your kid over, drop them off. When the thing's over, you have to get in your car, come back, pick your kids up. But the idea is to say, I want you having more Bible than that. And so we're going to make this commitment as a family. You're in Kaboom. Uh, if you've got a teenager, it's making the decision for your teenager, not letting your teenager run the house, but you run the house by saying, you know what, you're going to be in youth group. And I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. I don't care that you don't think they're friendly. I don't, I don't care uh, that you don't have anybody there to hang out with. I don't care. You're going to youth group. So the best thing you can do is go make a friend in youth group. Because you're going to youth group. Because I want more Bible in your life than that. I want you to be around peers who are trying to serve Jesus. I want you to be able to walk on your school campus and see somebody else who loves Jesus on your school campus. So you're going to go to youth group, which includes, you ready for this? When you get ready to sign up for soccer, and they're having soccer on the same night as youth group, youth group wins. Because you're taking spiritual leadership for your home, and you're saying God wins ahead of soccer. Guess what? You realize they give out trophies for everything in soccer? Just for showing up. Where's the win in that, right? Get them to youth group. It'll, it'll change their lives. But here's the deal. You can't ask your kids to be two-hour Christians if you're not modeling it. So the part of spiritual leadership for your home is to say, hey, you know what, we're going to join a small group, or we're going to stay an extra hour on Sunday, and we're going to be part of small churches, or we're going to get to the mine on Tuesday. Well, I don't care what that is. I'm just telling you that for your kids to believe it, they got to see mom and dad doing it. 
And men, you could literally step into spiritual leadership in your home by simply modeling being a two-hour Christian and then asking your kids to do the same. And then the last thing uh, that you could do and literally walk out of this room as the spiritual leader of your home is to have dates with your kids. And, and so here's, here's my suggestion. That you would say as a dad, hey, once a month, one evening in the month, I'm going to take one of my kids out to just hang out with me as dad. And if you've got 14 kids, this is gonna take a while. <clears throat> You're having a hard enough time just remembering their names. But it, so once a month, I'm gonna go out with my kids, and I don't care what you do. I don't, care, I don't care if you go to a Cardinals game. I don't care if you go to a movie. I don't care if you go to Baskin Robbins. I don't care. But somewhere in the night, you ready? Somewhere in the night, you're gonna find the opportunity to say to your kid, how are you and God doing? How are you and God doing? And, and chances are you're going to get the, ah, oh, we're doing okay. You know, we're right. And then, and then, ready? And then you go, well, I was just asking because, you know, two weeks ago, you were really disrespectful to your mom. And so I was just wondering. I was just wondering how you and God are actually doing. Men, this is akin to checking the oil. You do that on your car all the time. You go and you check the oil and you just see what the level's like. If it's a little bit low, you pour a little bit of oil in. And when you go to your kids and you say to your kids, hey, how are you and God doing? And if you discover the oil's low, you pour a little bit of God in. You realize that that question literally sets you up as the pastor of your home. Your kids may not remember anything else you do for the entirety of your parenting, but they'll remember that over an ice cream cone, their dads ask them, how are you and God? And they'll remember the discussion that comes out of that. Literally, those three incredibly easy steps set you up to be the spiritual hero of your home. And I, I would just encourage every man leaving this room, no matter where you are spiritually, that you leave with that as your goal. Lisa, would you like to add anything to that? Sure. That's solid. So wives... I would say that if you're going to ask them to be the spiritual leader, then it's important that you allow them to be the spiritual leader, which means that they, there will be probably many times when they may make decisions uh, that you're not going to like, and um, that can get very difficult. But if you're going to ask them to take that role, then allow them to answer to God and allow them to take that role. And I think that's, that's a hard one to do. But if you really want him to do that, he needs to see that he has your confidence that he's allowed to make those decisions. Hmm. I think one of the most powerful things in our relationship, Lisa's not timid. I mean, if you haven't figured that out, she's not timid. Um, I don't think we've made a huge decision in our marriage ever that I didn't hear from you what your opinion was because you're not very reticent to give your no, opinion. it's given freely. Yeah, there you go. Quickly. But here's the part that has made it so powerful for me as a man is that as we get to the end of that conversation, over and over again, you've said to me, Lynn, now it's you and God. You and God figure this thing out, which gives me, un first off, it, it puts huge responsibility on me. I, at that moment, I go, wow, I better go pray a little bit before I buy that car or before I make this decision. Um, but it also just conveys huge amounts of honor to me that this strong woman would say, now it's your decision to make. And what it's also given me is the freedom. I've made some bad decisions. I really, really have. But it's given. <laughs> it's, 
And uh, I'm gonna duck. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and in that one time uh, when I made a bad decision. Um, I had the freedom to now go back and raise my hand to Lisa and, because she had trusted me with it and go, hey, Lisa, in, in, in hindsight, I, I don't think that was a great decision. I, I, I don't think I did that one really, really well because I knew she hadn't spent the last six months harping on me about it or telling me how bad it was going, right? And so it gave me the freedom to come back and raise my own hand and go, hey, I, man, I, I think getting into that car payment was a bad choice. I think, you know, spending the money on a TV was probably not the wisest thing. It gave me that freedom. It's one of the very few times I think men are happy to say we were wrong. We know it. We do know that in our hearts. <laughs> but you gave us permission to be hmm. wrong, and you even followed us yeah. within making a wrong decision. And there's so much honor. It's a win. Yeah, it is it's a actually win. not even being wrong. There's a win within the marriage, I think, when that happens. Yeah, I would agree. You I just add? I love it knowing that God's in control and he's going to provide for our family and he's going to he's going to take care of this guy. Hmm. One way or the other he's going <laughs> to take care of this guy. So I just have to trust and you know and not to over spiritualize anything but truthfully I've said this is a role I want you to play so I need to be willing to do that and know that God is in control over him. Great. Well, you guys give Lynn and Lisa just a huge round of applause for spending this time with us.